So today I'd like to um, pick up on one of the perspectives of sharing from the last episode. We'll begin with, although the law bans the sale of flavored tobacco products to all customers regardless of age, lawmakers named it the Stop Tobacco Access for Kids Enforcement Act. They claimed it was needed to stop underage tobacco use because only kids apparently like flavor. To be sure, no one wants children smoking or vaping, but it's already illegal in California to sell or give tobacco and vapor products to anyone under the age of 21. If prohibition worked, then we wouldn't have a problem. It's also immensely hypocritical. At the same time, California is lowering taxes on marijuana and debating bills in the legislature to decriminalize psychedelic drugs. It is placing bans on menthol cigarettes, flavored smokeless tobacco, and other flavored nicotine vaping products that don't even contain tobacco. Those non-tobacco vaping products, mind you, were determined by an expert independent evidence review published by England's Public Health Agency to be 95% safer than smoking. Plus, Californians are smart enough to make this decision for themselves. Our state already has one of the lowest smoking rates in the country. In fact, California has lower cigarette use among adults than any state other than Utah, where the state's predominant religion frowns on smoking. Only the fear of God can get you to smoke less than what we do in California. Youth vaping was down 59% before the ban, and youth smoking rates are 1.9%, an all-time low. Also, we're, also, while the issue, as I stated, isn't directly taxpayer-related, and why the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association hasn't taken a formal position on the proposition. The legislative analysis of the legislative analysis of a ban on these products found that it would lead to significant revenue losses. Revenue is government speak for tax money that will exceed one billion dollars in the next four years. I'm sure the legislature won't take that sitting down and will try to find more revenue and higher taxes elsewhere. It's all about control, and it's why voters should just say no to Proposition 31. Why no? Because this measure is a referendum, which is one of the direct democracy powers that Californians have had since 1911, along with the power of initiative and recall. A referendum empowers voters to approve or reject at the polls any act or section of, or any part of any act of the legislature. On Proposition 31, California voters will be deciding whether to approve yes or reject no the law that bans flavored tobacco products. I'll be voting no and I don't even smoke. Alright, so today I'd like to share a final perspective on this issue. Michael Bloomberg's spending on California's Proposition 31 is getting ridiculous. Former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg has more than doubled his spending on California Pro- California's Proposition 31, a measure that would ban in-person sales on flavored tobacco products. On Thursday of last week, campaign finance records reviewed by SFGate showed that of the $17.3 million raised by the Yes on Proposition 31 committee, $15.3 million had come from Bloomberg, a billionaire and former presidential candidate. Because the no committee had raised just $2.1 million, it meant that Bloomberg had spent 79% of the money in the race. New records posted to the California Secretary of State's website show that in mid-October, Bloomberg gave another $20.3 million to the committee supporting Proposition 31. He's now responsible for whopping 90% of the money in the race. There are several ways to explain how astounding Bloomberg's new spending is. Not only did Bloomberg more than double his previous contributions, $15.3 million, he more than doubled the total amount of money spent in the race by both sides, $19.4 million, bringing the total to $39.7 million. With a total of $35.6 million invested in the race, Bloomberg's money dwarfs the total spending on two other California ballot measures. Proposition 1, which would add abortion protections to California's constitution. Both sides have combined to spend $14.2 million as of October 17th. And Proposition 28, which provides additional funding to arts, music, education, and public schools, $11 million as of October 17th. Bloomberg's 
$35.6 million is not far off from the $45.3 million Lyft has spent on Proposition 30 attacks on high-income earners that would fund electric vehicles. Lyft, mind you, would directly benefit from the passage of Proposition 30 and has been excreted by Governor Gavin Newsom and others in ads against the measure. Bloomberg's personal gain from the passage of Proposition 31 is tied solely to his years-long effort to get flavored tobacco products banned nationally. Furthermore, polls show that Proposition 30 is a competitive race, whereas Proposition 31 is very likely to pass. So today I'd like to also share some stuff about the California judges, the November 2022 election. Endorsement retained Chief Justice Patricia Guerrero, Supreme Court and Appeals Justices. California voters will see the names of four state Supreme Court justices on their November 8th ballots, plus additional names for intermediate level justices in one of the state six appellate districts. The voters in Los Angeles County and three other Southern California counties, that's the second district court of appeals where 12 justices are up for retention. The top of the list is Justice Patricia Guerrero, who grew up in the Imperial Valley and became a federal prosecutor, private sector attorney, San Diego Superior Court judge, and Court of Appeal Justice before Governor Gavin Newsom appointed her to the state Supreme Court in February, when Chief Justice Tani Kentil Sakai announced this summer that she would not seek a second 12-year term. Newsom nominated Guerrero to replace her. If Guerrero wins approval at the polls, she will become Chief Justice on January 2nd. There are seven justices on the state Supreme Court. Like in Superior Court races in which judicial candidates face off against one another, Supreme Court and Court of Appeal justices seek retention without opponents. The voters' job is to either voters' job is to say either yes or no to each of them. In contested retention elections, 12-year terms are meant to strike a balance between judicial independence, allowing justices to do their work free of popular sentiment or political partisanship and accountability to Californians. Accordingly, voters should vote yes unless they believe a particular justice has demonstrated unfitness to continue serving. The last time voters defeated justices who were up for retention was in 1986 when they ousted Chief Justice Rose Byrd and two other Supreme Court justices on the grounds that they were flouting the state's death penalty law. There are no such controversies this year. Guerrero is a distinguished but non-ideological jurist and administrator and a good choice to lead the state's judicial branch. Each of the other justices has proven records of sound decision-making. The other three Supreme Court justices up for attention are Newsom appointee Martin J. Jenkins and Jerry Brown appointees Joshua P. Groban and Goodwin Liu. The second district court of appeals is divided into eight divisions, of which seven hear appeals from the Los Angeles Superior Court. One hears appeals from Superior Courts in Ventura, Santa Barbara, and San Luis Obispo counties. There are four justices in each division, one of whom is appointed by the governor as presiding justice, and three of whom are randomly assigned to hear each appeal. Retention elections are held only in gubernatorial election years. Appointees generally begin serving as soon as they are confirmed by a three-person commission, and then they face voters the next time the governor is on the ballot. But their first election isn't necessarily a full 12-year term. Justices first, justices must first complete the unexpired terms of their predecessors, then return to the ballot for a full term. Lou, for example, was appointed in 2011, then was on the ballot in 2014 for the remainder of a term that expires at the beginning of next year. Now he's is running for his first full term. Similarly, if retained by voters, Groban must complete a term that expires in just four years before being eligible to seek a full 12-year term. Jenkins will begin his 12-year term on January 2nd because his predecessor left no additional time on his term when he retired. For the same reason, voters will consider some Court of Appeal justices who they already voted on as recently as four or eight years ago. The candidates' recommendations are California Chief Justice Patricia Guerrero, yes, Supreme Court 
Associate Justice Gwen Liu, yes. Joshua P. Groban, yes. Brian J. Jenkins, yes. Second District Court of Appeal Justice Audrey B. Collins, yes. Brian S. Curry, yes. Elizabeth Annette Grimes, yes. Ronaldo J. Baltando, yes. John L. Siegel, yes. John Shepard Wiley Jr., yes. Judith um, Ashman, yes. Lamar W. Baker, yes. Luce A. Levin, yes. Francis Rothschild, yes. Lawrence D. Rubin, yes. Maria E. Stratton, yes. Something else I'd like to share about this California judges conversation is yes or no are endorsements for California Supreme and Appeals Courts. Much of the American public distrusts the judicial system right now. Partisan fidelity and a transparent lack of objectivity on the part of the United States Supreme Court has disillusioned many. As a consequence, judicial elections once the epitome of down race. As a consequence, judicial elections once the epitome of down ballot races are being watched closely around the country, rightly so. After the fall of Roe v. Wade, state Supreme Court justices in places like Indiana and Ohio suddenly have an outsized role in determining the legality of reproductive rights. The Orlando Centennial has told its readers not to retain the majority of Florida's justices about this November over concerns surrounding its ideological bent. Thankfully, California doesn't suffer the same problems as the other parts of the country in this regard. We're still a Democratic stronghold, and our judges for the Supreme and Appeals Court are well-vetted and monitored. California judicial retention elections, like the ones on your November ballot for State Supreme Court and the California Court of Appeals, function differently than those of regular elections. Judges at this level of the law were originally appointed by the governor, not by voters. Every 12 years, however, voters get to have a say whether a judge should be retained with a guest vote or dismissed with a no. If voters decide not to retain a judge, the governor appoints a replacement. Judges up for retention are ethically bound from discussing their case deliberations, raising money for campaigns, and engaging in politics. It's perhaps a bit strange than given the lack of insight voters have into their thinking that judges are asked to appear on the ballot, but it does provide an additional layer of scrutiny in case of any obvious malfeasance. It's so Rare for a judge not to be retained. The last time a judge didn't win a retention election was in 1986, after a bitter campaign by conservatives who sought more death penalty rulings. Decades have passed since a justice seeking a new term even faced in the opposition campaign. Part of this is due to the caliber of judges who make the cut for these seats. California has an especially thorough vetting process. When someone is nominated, the Judicial Nominees Evaluation Committee requests that they put together a list of 50 people whom they have worked with professionally for background and character interviews. That's just a starting point. Hundreds of people are contacted from lawyers to professors to judges to comment on each nominee's judicial temperament, ability to be objective, respect for their community's health and legal experience. Anything but a anything bad a candidate has done during their legal career will no doubt be uncovered. A series of intensive interviews with candidates seek to catch anything else. Mary Beth Moylan, a lawyer and the associate dean of the University of the Pacific, receives vetting requests from the um, Judicial Nominees Evaluation Committee regularly, and she believes in the system's integrity. It's a pretty intensive vetting process, which results in people being appointed who have a really good reputation in the legal community. She told the editorial board, I feel like it's really unusual that you get a judge in that position, especially in the appellate and Supreme Court, who is not an upstanding member of the community. Of course, judges can still make grave mistakes after they have been appointed, but none of the judges that appear on 
Barrier Bellet this year received any disciplinary decisions from the California Commission on Judicial Performance, an independent state agency tasked with investigating judicial misconduct. In other words, each candidate up for attention has been deeply vetted, has not made raisable errors in ethics or judgment on the bench. You might not agree with every decision they have made, but these justices are mentally qualified. This makes our decisions around the 13 judges up for election on this year's ballot a breeze. We believe all four California Supreme Court justices, Patricia Guerrero, Martin J. Jenkins, Goodwin Liu, Joshua Groban, and all nine California Court of Appeals First District Justices, Therese M. Stewart, Allison M. Trusher, or Therese M. Stewart, Allison M. Tusher, Iona Petru, Karen T. Fujaski, Victor A. Rodriguez, Tracy L. Brown, Jeremy M. Goldman, Terry L. Jackson, Gordon B. Burns should be retained to continue their work. Voters can select yes on their ballots for each and feel safe in that decision. So today I'd like to share something about, I believe it was the um, California State Supreme Chief Justice um, election. Um, I believe uh, the one Patricia Guerrero who was running was retained in the election or as the begin early results are showing, but I'd still like to share this article. So Guerrero taking reins of state Supreme Court isn't seen shifting from its consensus path. It is 600 miles from the sun-baked city of Imperial where Justice Patricia Guerrero grew up to McAllister Street in downtown San Francisco where the state Supreme Court building stands. The mileage is one way to measure the distance that Guerrero has traveled in her life. The daughter of Mexican immigrants whose father was a farm worker in the fields of Imperial County Guerrero, valedictorian of her class at Imperial High School, graduate of Berkeley and Stanford, top-tier lawyer at a powerhouse firm, is poised to make history as the state's next chief justice and its first Latina. On Friday, after a largely ceremonial 80-minute hearing, Guerrero was confirmed by the Commission on Judicial Appointments as the next chief justice. She'll appear on the November ballot, and if voters elect her, she will replace current chief justice Tenny Cantil who's retiring. Her ascent to become the leader of the court caps not only inspiring personal story, but also remarkably rapid rise through the state judiciary for the 50-year-old Guerrero. A little more than nine years ago, Guerrero was plucked by Governor Jerry Brown from a successful position as a partner at the powerhouse law firm Latham & Watkins in San Diego to take a seat on the San Diego Superior Court. Just four years later, she was named to the 4th District Court of Appeal in downtown San Diego, and in March, after less than five years on the appellate court, Governor Gavin Newsom named her to the Supreme Court as an associate justice, replacing Mariano Florentino Queller. Five months later, he tapped her to replace Kintil Saiki, who decided not to seek retention to a second 12-year term. He was stepped down at the end of the year. Under Kintil Saiki, the court was highly consensus-driven with no... With under Cantil Saki, the court was highly consensus-driven with more than 80% of the opinions decided unanimously. Expect more of the same under David A. Carrillo, the executive director of the California Constitution Center at Berkeley Law, who studies the state Supreme Court. Given what we know about Justice Guerrero and the current court's consensus culture and where things stand in California, we should not expect a dramatic change on the court. He said in an email, the 29th Chief Justice will assume command of an entire 29th Chief Justice will assume command of a retired relatively stable and 
No, the 29th Chief Justice will assume command of a re relatively stable and... Uh, the 29th Chief Justice will assume command of a relatively stable and decently funded judicial branch and like set to chart a course of continuity. No sweeping doctrines. Guerrero comes to the court with no less judicial experience than her predecessors. Until Sakuri had been a judge for 20 years, including five on the 3rd District Court of Appeals in Sacramento before Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger named her Chief Justice in 2010 to replace Chief Justice Ronald George, who had been a judge for 19 years before being named Associate Justice of the Supreme Court in 1991 and elevated to its leader in 1996. The San Diego Union Tribune reviewed scores of published opinions grew, authored, or joined in well on the San Diego Appeals Court. She did not create any sweeping new legal doctrines in the opinion she wrote, and there was no obvious pattern such as always ruling for prosecutors or siding with plaintiffs. A spokesman for the Judicial Council said Guerrero was declining requests for interviews after the confirmation hearing. Well, Carrillo said Guerrero's work put her pretty squarely in the mainstream of appellate court justices. Some decisions stand out, and perhaps her most far-reaching decision in 2020, Guerrero wrote an opinion holding e-commerce giant Amazon strictly liable under state law for selling defective products. The case centered on a consumer who purchased a replacement laptop battery from a third-party seller on Amazon, then was burned while the battery blew up. Several months later, the buyer sued Amazon, which contended it could not be liable because the company did not manufacture, sell, or distribute the product. San Diego Superior Court Judge argued. San Diego Superior Court Judge agreed with the company throughout the suit, but Guerrero wrote in a unanimous opinion reversing that decision. She wrote that the company was strictly liable under state consumer laws because it was a direct link in the sale of the product and acted as a powerful intermediary between the third-party seller and the consumer. She also rejected the company's argument that if she also rejected the company's argument that it was shielded under Section 230 of the Communication Decency Act, which companies like Facebook and Twitter have used to protect themselves from suits. The section says a digital platform isn't liable for the content it hosts. Amazon, like other e-commerce sites, claimed that protection by saying it did not write the product description of the faulty battery and could not be held liable for a consumer decision. Amazon appealed. Guerrero's ruling, but the state Supreme Court declined to take that case. The Minthurst was one of the first rulings in the country that said Amazon could be held responsible for its products. To Jerry Robinson of the San Diego law firm Casey Jerry, who represented the woman, it's a very significant ruling, he said. It has been relied on now in other cases and written up in law review articles. This is very much a pro-consumer decision. If there is a through line in her opinions, it is that Grow adheres closely to a law as it was written, applies it only as far as needed to resolve a case. For instance, in January, Grow ruled in favor of a woman who had sued the San Diego Metropolitan Transit System for injuries she suffered when she fell on a bus. The suit had been thrown out on technicality. The woman had filed her lawsuit more than six months after the agency denied her required administrative government claim. Grow concluded, however, that the notice denying the claim sent by uh, the Metropolitan Transit System was effective. It did not include language required under state law advising the woman she could consult a lawyer. The suit was revived and is ongoing, said Sean Hudson, 
the lawyer for the injured woman. He said the decision benefited individuals who for years often have been blocked from suing government agencies because they did not comply with every technical aspect of filing a claim that's really damaging to consumers and plaintiffs who want their day in court. He said Justice Carrero is saying to the extent we can, to the degree we can, let's play fair. In 2019, she wrote an opinion in a criminal case that illustrates again how she interprets law and applies it only as far as needed. Gross said that private crime labs assist prosecutors on a case can be considered part of the prosecution team and the work therefore subject to discovery by defense lawyers. In the same ruling, however, she said that two government expert witnesses could not be considered part of the prosecution team and were not subject to discovery rules. The difference, the private labs the work they did for the prosecution were not distinguishable from the government crime laboratories that are now universally seen as part of the prosecution team, but the two experts were not so closely involved in the actual investigation of the murder. She concluded they were ordinary expert witnesses, not members of the prosecution team. There's no evidence that they stepped outside that role. The ruling was an important step forward in this area of law, said Christina Spalding of the Office of the State Public Defender, which filed the case many small and medium countries use private labs forensic work so the ruling could have broader application. But Spalding said her office disagreed with the reasoning of the expert witnesses and unsuccessfully asked the Supreme Court to review the ruling. Criminal cases. Much of Guerrero's work dealt with criminal cases, which is common for justice on the appellate courts who, unlike justice on the Supreme Court, do not choose which cases they will consider. Appellate courts generally have to decide any appeal filed with them, and since many convictions are appealed, criminal cases make up a substantial portion of the workload. Guerrero's rulings, Guerrero's rulings here dealt largely with sentencing issues, admissibility of evidence, and the like. In 2021, she wrote an opinion that an inmate who was serving a sentence for both violent and nonviolent offenses was not entitled to early parole. Change in state law said people serving nonviolent sentences could be paroled early, but Guerrero ruled that law did not allow someone with both kinds of convictions to get out early. A ruling that was upheld by the Supreme Court. In 2020, she wrote an opinion reversing a trial court's ruling that threw out a national city robbery carjacking case against several men who claimed their constitutional rights were violated. The defendant said the San Diego County District Attorney's Office should have compelled the federal um, DEA to turn over the information or the defendant said the San Diego County District Attorney's Office should have compelled the federal DEA to turn over information it had, which they said could have helped their case. Guerrero ruled that the prosecutor was not obligated to do so and dismissing the charges was unwarranted. In a 2019 case from Riverside County, she threw out the conviction in a 15-year sentence in a child molestation case. She found that a prosecutor's comments to... The jury attacking the defense lawyer amounted to misconduct. She also found the defendant's lawyer provided inadequate representation for not objecting. While experts do not expect her judicial philosophy will dramatically shift the court's rulings, how she performs in the other part of her job remains to be seen. Guerrero will become the leader not only of the seven-member court, but also the chief executive of the sprawling state court system with close to 2,200 trial and appellate court justices in 58 counties with a budget of $5 billion. So today, something else I want to talk about was the third appellate district judges, um, Judge Stacey Bohr-Uri, SCBA's um, Judge of the Year, is a tireless advocate for changing the judicial system. So yeah, Sacramento County Bar Association's Judge of the Year is a tireless advocate for changing the judicial system. Judge Christopher Kruger sits in the 
Department 54 of the Sacramento County Superior Court. It was an all-too-common scene in juvenile court. A 17-year-old foster girl who had recently had a baby set before the judge with tears in her eyes trying not to cry. When Judge Stacey Bulwer-Uri asked her what was wrong, the girl indicated that she was overwhelmed by the proceedings. A dependency court judge had previously ordered her to attend parenting classes. Now Bulwer-Uri was poised to impose a juvenile justice sentence for a crime the girl had committed. The multiplicity of requirements between the two sir. The multiplicity of requirements between the two court orders simply overwhelmed the girl. Judge Boyer Yuri said, We'll work with that other judge and we will work it out so you can do this one step at a time, recalled Michelle Calejas, director of the Sacramento County Child, Family, and Adult Services Department. Calejas cited the judge's efforts that day years ago as typical of the kind of problem solving approach Boyer Yuri employed in the Sacramento County Juvenile Court where she served as a presiding judge from 2010 through 2018. She is compassionate and empathetic and still held a firm line. Bulwer Yuri, who is being honored as the Sacramento County Bar Association 2020 Judge of the Year, has drawn praise from many quarters of our legal community as a skillful judge, a mentor to youth, lawyers, and even fellow judges, and as a reformer seeking to improve our judicial system. She's one of the most talented judges I've ever worked with or appeared in front of Sacramento District Attorney Amory Schubert. Her passion for this work, particularly when it involves youth in the justice system or at risk of becoming involved in the justice system, is remarkable. She does a lot of work in different communities in terms of encouraging people, most especially young people, to make their lives better. Notice you, Sacramento Superior Court Judge James Long, retired once said, I think she's an exceptional judicial talent. Judge Bulwer-Yuri is respected and admired by her colleagues for her dedication to her mission and for her integrity and hard work. She is a role model who puts in, who puts her heart into work. Judge Stephen Griviser said, A propedic childhood, Bulwer-Yuri was born on a naval base in Maine where her father, Ralph Bulwer, was assigned to serve for the United States Air Force. After he left the military, the family moved to Atlanta for a short stint before setting in Plano, Texas. Bora Yuri, her sister, and her parents spent most of her first grade through ninth grade years in Plano, except for a 10 month stretch in 1979 when the family moved to Tehran, Iran. The family move occurred when her father was assigned by his employer, Electronic Data Systems, EBS, to work on a new social security system for the Iranian government. The family was forced to abruptly depart when the Iranian Revolution broke out and hostages were taken at the United States Embassy. Although the Bulwers were fortunate not to become guests of the Ayatollah, two um, electronic data system employees were taken hostage. Ralph Bulwer returned to Iran after safeguarding his family as part of a rescue team organized by the electronic data systems owner, Ross Perot. The story is recounted in On Wings of Eagles, a book by Ken Follett. Except for that time in Iran, Bulwer Yuri remembers an ideal childhood with many friends and lots of soccer. My parents were very hardworking and very involved in my life and my sister's life, she said. We lived in a neighborhood where the kids and parents felt safe. It was go out and play and come home before dark. In the middle of ninth grade, the family moved to Agora Hills, California, where she attended high school. The road to the bench, Bulwer Yuri had no immediate family in the legal profession. A distant great-great-cousin, the late Harold P. Bulwer, served as chief counsel in the South Carolina of the South Carolina honor Stacey Boer Yuri um, 
A distant great cousin, the late Harold B. Bohr, serves as chief counsel of the South Carolina and National. No, okay. This is great great cousin the late Harold People War served as chief counsel of the South Carolina NAACP and handled the South Carolina case Bridge versus Elliott, which is one of four cases incorporated into Brown versus Board of Education, nineteen fifty four, before seven US four hundred eighty three, the landmark United States Supreme Court case striking down the separate but equal doctrine as a violation of equal protection. Bower Yuri keeps a famous picture in her chambers of Harold Bower. Thurgood Marshall and Spotswood W. Robinson III conferring at the Supreme Court before the oral arguments in Brown. She said it reminds her of the burdens faced by youth of color seeking an education back then and the importance of education to today's youth. Bulwer Yuri, who never met Errol Bulwer, credits the Black Pre-Law Society at University of California, Los Angeles for inspiring her interest in law. In law. Uh, Bulwer Yuri, who never met Harold Bulwer, credits the Black Pre-Law Society at University of California, Los Angeles, for inspiring her interest in the law. By the time she graduated from the University of California, Davis is king. Hall School of Law in 1995, Bohr, Yuri envisioned both a legal career and an eventual judicial career. I've always had a five-year plan to gain experiences and skills as a lawyer and a 10-year plan to be a judge, she recalls. Bohr, Yuri spent her first four years of practice at Rothschild, Wishick and Sands, where she represented criminal defendants in state court proceedings and credential educators before the California Commission on Teacher Credentialing. She enjoyed the firm, but left in 2000 to join the California Attorney General's office in order to get civil litigation experience. At the Attorney General's office, Boriuri began as a deputy handling employment litigation. Within a few years, she became a confidential employee, a deputy assigned to give advice to the Department of Justice and its investigations of its own internal employment matters. She later served as a supervising deputy attorney general in the Employment Regulation Administration section and as senior assistant attorney general over the government law section. Boriuri is a supervisor the attorney general's office recalled that her legal talent was immediately obvious. It was her co-counsel in her first jury trial, said Jacob Applesmith, now director of the California Department of Alcoholic and Beverage Control. She was brilliant, and when we interviewed the jurors after the verdict, they were astonished to learn she had not tried many cases before. Even though I knew she hadn't, I felt astonished myself. She was clearly a natural. Judge Pamela Smith-Stewart, who was a chief of the civil division of the attorney general's office, hired Bowyer-Yuri, said she was a star attorney during her time at the Department of Justice. She has continued that tradition of excellence during her time on the bench. She is... Highly intelligent, very wise, and unfailingly kind and respectful to everyone she interacts with. I am honored to call her my friend and very proud of her accomplishments. Deputy Attorney General Noreen Skelly said Bulwer-Yuri was also generous with her time and talents. She was very collegial. If you needed to balance a strategic approach off someone while working up a case, she always had time for you. Just even Aquisto, a former colleague in the Attorney General's office, said Judge Bulwer-Yuri exhibits every quality you could want in a judge. She's smart, fair, eloquent, poised, pa patient, and kind. She's one of the most professional, hardworking, and talented people I've ever worked with, and she serves our committee with dignity and honor. Advocate for Youth, Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger appointed Bulwer-Yuri to the bench in 2007. In 2010, she became presiding judge of the juvenile court. As a juvenile court judge, Bulwer-Yuri led an overhaul of the county's approach to youth who crossed over from the dependency system into the juvenile justice system. Like the teenage girl described at the beginning of this article, many kids who find themselves in the foster care system because of the lack of parental supervision, 
later became part of the juvenile justice system when they break the law. The project required the bringing together of representatives of the court, Sacramento County Probation, Child Protective Services, Behavioral Health Services, and the Sacramento Office of Education. Parties attended a program at the Georgetown University Center for Juvenile Justice Reform in 2014 that led to a memorandum of understanding among the agencies. It also led to creation of a court docket dedicated to serving actual or suspected commercially sexually exploited children, a screening tool to use to identify those children, environmental and program improvements for youth in secure custody, and the implementation of a crossover youth practice model. Kalejas, the Sacramento County Director of Child, Family, and Adult Services, recalls that getting the various agencies to cooperate was not an easy task for Bo or Yuri. As we were launching our cross-system efforts, she proactively addressed systems, essentially pointing fingers at other systems but about responsibility for serving our kids. No shock, but we tended to work in our own silos, which often led to children and families falling through the cracks, she stated. These are not your children, my children or their children. These are our children. We will work together to better serve them with joint responsibility and joint accountability. That was all she needed to say. No one ever questioned it because we all committed to that philosophy and our children and youth are better off because of it. Chief Probation Officer Lee Seal agrees that Bulwari-Yuri's leadership was vital to making change occur. Judge Bulwari-Yuri deserves recognition for her leadership, compassion, and vision. In her work together, she has helped to transform Sacramento County's juvenile justice system to one where youth and families are better supported with treatment and services. The impact of Judge Bulwari-Yuri's work is still felt today. Judge Bulwari-Yuri is also involved with numerous initiatives to help youth both locally and at the statewide level, she serves on the Executive Committee of Operation Protect and Defend and as a member of the Chief Justice's Power of Democracy Steering Committee. She's the chair of the Keeping Kids in School and Out of Court Steering Committee and a member of the California Child Welfare Council. She is a former member of the National Child Traumatic Stress Network Advisory Board. Judge Bulwar Yuri is committed to improving resources and programs to address the needs of sexually exploited children and at-risk youth. This is the Sacramento County Bar Association President Sinead Buffington, she is passionate about remedying the pipeline that funnel youth out of school onto a path toward prison. I recommend Judge Bulwer Yuri's dedication or I commend Judge Bulwer Yuri's dedication to child advocacy and her continued efforts to tackle issues faced by youth in the juvenile justice system. Bulwer Yuri believes her involvement with helping youth is integral to doing her duty as a judge. Although my husband Kyle and I do not have any children of our own, I'm inspired, motivated, and determined to do all I can in my role as a judicial officer to lift up some of the most vulnerable court users are youth. Particularly through my service on the juvenile court bench, I learned about the opportunity and frankly the obligation to get off the bench and into the community to better understand what our youth and their families are navigating. We must be humble in our service and to be accessible, to be present, and to be involved in a variety of ways without any expectation other than constant we must be humble in our service and to be accessible, to be present, and to be involved in a variety of ways without any expectation other than to constantly learn. Has made 2016 West Coast Children's Clinic Forum on Child Sex Trafficking. Wait, hold on. We must be humble in our service and to be accessible, to be present, and to be involved in a variety of ways without any expectation other than to constantly learn. Has made me a better judge all around. Being involved in different bodies and organizations has aided my efforts to work with other stakeholders to improve every system I serve in from. A place of knowledge and humility. Mentor to others. In addition to those colleagues at Systemic Change, Bulwer Yuri is praised by her current and former colleagues as a mentor to others. Judge Hama 
Mizwala said, Of the many things I respect about Judge Bulwer Yuri at the top is her willingness to effectively mentor lawsuits and lawyers without fanfare or recognition. Some have been lawyers I've encountered later in their careers, and they credit their success to Judge Bulwer Yuri's frank but caring advice, emphasizing the need for excellence, respect of all parties in the court, and meaningful community service. Indeed, I have been the beneficiary of her guidance. As an up-and-coming lawyer, commissioner, and judge, I vividly remember her stopping by my chambers daily when I was a commissioner, and she was the presiding judge at the juvenile division. She taught me the skills a new judicial officer needed to know, how to effectively manage a calendar, how to hold efficient and fair hearings, how to step back when things became a little too heated. She is the richly deserving recipient of the Sacramento Bar Association 2020 Judge of the Year. Judge Kenneth Minimer, likewise, commented that Bulwer-Yuri was greatly helpful to him when he was assigned as a new judge to juvenile court. For me, Stacey has been a mentor. She has always made herself available to answer questions. More than once, I turned to her on weekends, and she always took my calls. Stacy has also been a role model. She leads by example as presiding judge of the juvenile court. She has many or Stacy has also been a role model, or as a citing judge of the juvenile court, she had many responsibilities, both in and out of the courtroom. Notwithstanding the many demands on her time, Stacy still finds time to engage with the larger Sacramento community, whether through bar functions such as in of court or through youth-oriented educational programs such as Operation Protect and Defend. By her example, Stacy inspires others to expand their thinking about how they too can serve the community. I am so very proud to be her colleague. So my congratulations to Stacey Boer-Yuri, 2020 Sacramento County Bar Association Judge of the Year. Something else I'd like to t- talk about today is more of this third public district stuff is lesbian justice Earl confirmed to California Appellate Court. With her confirmation, the state's third district court of appeal Justice Lori M. Earl is now the fifth LGBTQ person serving on one of California's six appellate courts and the first on the third district court bench. She was unanimously confirmed to the appellate bench and took her oath of office during a virtual hearing January 6th. Noting the historic nature of both her becoming an appellate judge, just the 10th woman to serve on the third district, and it's taking place on the one-year anniversary of the siege of the United States Capitol by backers of former President Donald Trump, a teary-eyed Earl said she was proud to reclaim the date for a more honorable historic moment. As one of her two sons wrote in a text message to family and friends, January 6, 2021, rioters broke through the glass doors to gain access to our nation's capital. January 6, 2022, Lori M. Earl broke through the glass ceiling to gain access to the California Court of Appeal, recanted Earl, accept my role in history as being first, and I'm honored to claim January 6th not as that day, but as my day. California Supreme Court Chief Justice Taney Kintil Sakyu, Attorney General Raul Bonta, and the 3rd District Appellate Court Senior Presiding Justice Vance W. Ray voted to confirm Earl during her confirmation hearing Thursday. The State Bar Commission on Judicial Nominees Evaluation last February had evaluated Earl and found to be exceptionally well qualified to serve on the appellate bench. Earl had sought appointment to the appellate bench under former Governor Jerry Brown, but was not selected. She reapplied with Governor Gavin Newsom's administration in December 2019. In November, Newsom nominated Earl 60, a fellow Democrat, to fill the vacancy created by the retirement of appellate jurist M. Kathleen Butts. Since 2005, Earl has served on the California... Since 2005, Earl has served on the Sacramento County Superior Court, where she has also served as presiding judge. Prior to her judicial appointment by then-Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, a Republican, Earl served roughly a year. 
as the Senior Assistant Inspector General at the Sacramento County Office of Inspector General. Between 1995 and 2004, she was Deputy District Attorney at the Sacramento County District Attorney's Office. Born in San Jose and raised in Modesto, Earl graduated from University of California, Berkeley, then earned her law degree at Lincoln Law School in Sacramento. She was named the law school's alumnus of the year in 2005 and 2012. In 1989, she joined the Sacramento County Public Defender's Office as an assistant public defender. Due to her time as a public defender, Earl said as a prosecutor, she was able to recognize that it was a person on the other side of the courtroom and not a bad guy. It also allowed her to understand the mindset of the people who appeared before her as a trial court judge. I learned a great deal as an assistant public defender in just human nature, said Earl, represented people who were quite frankly scared. Sacramento County Superior Court presiding judge Michael Bowman said of his colleague, she's kind, considerate, and helped raise a wonderful family. He added that Earl will make an excellent justice. She already is an excellent judge. More importantly, she's an excellent person. The two were often opposing counsel prior to the they were becoming judges as Bowman was a criminal defense attorney. He recounted how Earl was always prepared and always staunchly ethical. He joked that her ego wouldn't allow me to say she was a better trial lawyer than me. But I can't say it was close. Out of other justices, Earl brings the number of out women on the state appellate court bench to three as already serving are lesbians Therese M. Stewart in the 1st District and Marsha G. Slow in the 4th District. Two gay men serve as state appellate justices, James M. Humes in the 1st District and Louis A. Lavin in the 2nd District. Having worked with Earl over the years, particularly on a contentious funding reform for the state's trial courts, Decade Ago Slow noted that Earl approaches leadership positions with an iron fist covered with a silk glove. She knew when and how to use each. Rarely did we see her take that silk glove off, said Slow, who formerly served on the San Bernardino County Superior Court. Her willingness to be collaborative resulted in others acting in kind. So added that Earl has a strong work ethic and is committed to justice. She is a wonderful wife to her wife, Jody Cooperman, and a wonderful mother to her boys. I'm sure they are the reason why she forged the iron fist under the silk glove. Earl lives in Sacramento with Cooperman, her partner of nearly three years. The couple married in 2008 and have two adult sons. Josh, 25, is in law school in Portland, and Sam, 22, is in college in San Francisco and works at a vintage clothing store in the hot. She thanked her family for their support, as well as Newston for having confidence in her becoming an appellate justice and the various legal groups that spoke up in favor of her confirmation. I'm incredibly proud of them and my family, said Earl of her sons and wife as she choked up. I wouldn't be here without my family's love and support. She also took note of the historic nature of her confirmation while also saying she looked forward to the day where someone's being the first, whether due to their ethnicity or sexual orientation, no longer was a main focus. But a secondary mention because such words have been exhausted. But today I will live in the glow of being the first and wear it like a badge of honor, said Earl. Today of all days, January 6th is not a date that needs to make room for the pride and honor I feel of being here today. Earl said she shares Newsom's values of wanting to see a state judiciary reflective of California's residents and all of their unique characteristics and that a diverse court bench matters. I'm proud of who I am and all of who I am has informed and guided me as a jurist. I am a woman. I am a wife. I am a mother. I am a daughter, a sister, a friend. I'm a lawyer. I am a criminal defense attorney. I am a prosecutor, a teacher, a student, a child judge, and yes, I am a lesbian. Each part of who I am has given me perspective on the bench and more importantly has given me what I consider the most important personal attributes a judge should have, humility, and the ability to always remember where you came from, she added. Earl earned $256,138 as an associate justice on the appellate bench. Something else I want to talk about today is Measure A in Sacramento County. Sacramento County voters must reject Measure A, an 
$8.5 billion gift to special interests. Sacramento County Measure 8 would not only impose a progressive tax at a time of historic inflation, it's also an attempt to circumvent the democratic processes and expertise that have shaped the region's transportation policy for decades. It's imperative that voters reject it. The proposal is sponsored and dishonestly crafted by political operatives, mega developers, and other special interests seeking to benefit from more than $8.5 billion in taxpayer money. They concocted an initiative loaded with pet projects that will make them rich, counting on voter apathy in a midterm election and undeniable frustration with the condition of local roads and infrastructure. A coalition of powerful real estate business and trade groups dubbed the Committee for Better Sacramento, which believes rules are merely obstacles to overcome disguised proposal as a routine inquiry about increasing the sales tax, but Measure A is not ordinary. Voters approve it. They will bind the Sacramento region to the 20th century transportation habits and swelling growth patterns that have clogged our roads and polluted our air, and they will squander the last 0.5% in sales tax that Sacramento, Ilton, and Rancho Cordova can levy by law. Entities owned by mega developer Angelo K. Sacopolis and the Cordova Hills Development Corporation were the largest underwriters of signature gathering efforts towards exploring the citizens' initiative process and a state Supreme Court loophole. The interest behind the measure cherry-pick projects that benefit their bottom lines, including the interest behind the measure cherry-pick projects that benefit the bottom lines, including costly road and highway expansions that experts across California have deemed unnecessary. At least 26 of the projects in Measure A are not included in long-range transportation plans that govern the six-county region. These projects worth $3.5 billion threaten the region's climate goals, according to an analysis by the Sacramento Area Council of Governments, or SACOG, the region's chief planning authority. Violating the state-mandated goals would not only increase pollution, but also cut off access to state and federal funds that support housing and infrastructure projects across the region. To avoid that, Sacramento Area Council of Government officials, attorneys, and political operatives spent Months negotiating a so-called memorandum of understanding that restores a semblance of oversight to mitigate environmental harm. The attempt to overcome glaring weaknesses in the memo, which is susceptible to political influence in future amendments, Sacramento Mayor Daryl Steinberg vowed to sponsor state legislation to codify the agreement, but the very existence of the memorandum and the need for legislation highlights the measure's problems. With so much at stake for the region's six counties, Sacramento, Placer, El Dorado, Sutter, Yolo, and Yuba, relying on such porous promises is a gamble. The project most coveted by the interest behind the measure and most harmful to the Sacramento area is alongside Southeast Capital Connector. Pitches needed to link Folsom and Outgrowth, the 34-mile expressway, would unlock more rural land to developers and pull investments away from the cities and suburbs where the region can sustainably grow by enabling sprawl in far-flung corners of the the county voters could undermine the only climate-friendly alternatives the region has left. Sacramento Regional Transit District General Manager Henry Lee, whose agency is neutral measure A, but adamant about the need for more transit funding, conceded as much in an interview with the B's editorial board. When pressed about light rail expansions promised to the public under measure A, Lee acknowledged that maybe I even have doubts about them, suggesting that the transit projects being sold to voters may not be realized. Measure A is a flagrant abuse of political power in the initiative process. Leading campaign figures such as Region Business Association CEO Joshua Wood and California Alliance for Job CEO Michael Quigley P. 
appear to be counting on getting their way based on voters' legitimate frustration with the region's transportation infrastructure, the overall politics of voters countywide. Voters should not reward the special interest misleading the public with 40 years of taxpayer money for projects that handcuff us to unsustainable sprawl and congestion. The Cabo region can do better. Measure A should be resoundingly rejected. So something else I'd like to share today, another one of these um, Sacramento County um, initiatives is Sacramento County voters could legalize and tax marijuana dispensaries, but should they? The Sacramento County Board of Supervisors considered regulations earlier this year that have finally sanctioned tax marijuana businesses in unincorporated areas of the county, but the measure fell short of the supermajority it needed to pass in July, leaving the supervisors who support it just days to get it on the November ballot. Measure B, as it's now known, made the deadline giving voters a chance to allow marijuana businesses under county jurisdiction and dedicate the revenue to boosting the region's inadequate response to the homelessness crisis. Measure B requires the support of two-thirds of voters to pass, which is no small feat. If it is improved, if it is approved, the supervisors will need only a simple majority to legalize, regulate, and tax marijuana businesses in the unincorporated areas of the county. Board Chairman and District 5 Supervisor Dan Atoli and District 4 Supervisor Sue Frost both voted against legalizing cannabis last summer. That was enough to kill the measure then, but their votes wouldn't be decisive if the measure B passes. The measure deserves support. Legalized cannabis is already a voter-approved reality in California, and the legalization was broadly supported by voters expecting sanctioned sales in Sacramento County and beyond. Moreover, county residents are already shopping for marijuana and dispensaries allowed by the city of Sacramento. Sacramento County is letting other jurisdictions collect cannabis and sales tax revenue that could benefit its coffers. This measure would bring a steady and much-needed boost to the county's Homelessness services helping expand shelter capacity for people in unincorporated areas. County analysts estimate that it would bring in as much as $8 million annually. Although it's cannabis business operation tax, the city of Sacramento has seen marijuana revenues grow from $4.8 million in fiscal 2018 to more than $25 million in 2021. According to the municipal budget this fall, city voters will have a chance to commit a portion of that revenue to the program to make wise investments in future generations of Sacramentans. Legal cannabis revenue is benefiting the city of Sacramento, but not the county. Measure B would put that revenue towards homelessness, the most pressing issue in the county. If voters approve it, they should. So today I want to talk about University of Idaho students were likely asleep before being attacked. Police say as search for answers intensifies. The four University of Idaho students who were found stabbed multiple times in their off-campus home were likely asleep before they were attacked. Moscow, Idaho police said in a Friday evening update. The update posted on Facebook, authorities released several new details about the gruesome killings that left the university's community in shock and grief. Detectives have conducted 38 interviews with people who may have information about the killings. The update said and took the contents of three dumpsters on the road the house was located on in case there was evidence. Investigators also asked local businesses if there had been any recent purchases of a fixed blade knife. The update said... There are no suspects in custody and the weapon has not been found, police said. The four college students, Ethan Chapman, 20, Kaylee Goncalves, 21, Zana Kernodal, 20, and Madison Mogan, 21, were found stabbed to death Sunday in their shared off-campus home near the university. Victims were found on the second and third floors of the home. Idaho State Police Communications Director Aaron Snell told CNN earlier on Friday, Latag County Coroner Kathy Mabut told CNN she was, or Lata County Coroner Kathy Mabut told CNN she saw lots of blood on the wall when she arrived at the scene. 
She confirmed there were multiple stab wounds on each body, likely from the same weapon, but would not disclose how many wounds nor where most were located. Stab wounds on the hands of at least one victim appeared to be defensive wounds, according to Mabut. She said there was no sign of sexual assault on the bodies during the autopsies. In their Friday evening update, police said some of the victims had defensive wounds. The university announced Friday a candlelight vigil in memory of the four students will take place on campus November 30th. Please join us from where you are individually or as a group. To help us light up Idaho, the university's website said, light a candle, turn on stadium lights, or hold a moment of silence with us as we unite on campus. Investigators released a map and timeline. Hoping for tips from the community, investigators on Friday released a map and timeline of the victims' movements last weekend. The map shows the four students spent most of their or the map shows the four students spent most of the night separated in pairs. Chaplain and Cronodal attended a party in the Sigma Chai fraternity house from 8 p.m. to 9 p.m. local time Saturday. Calvis and Mogan were found at the Corner Club Sports Bar between 10 p.m. and 1.30 a.m. They picked up food at a food truck at 1.40 a.m. before heading home. The four victims were back at the house by 1.45 a.m. Sunday. Investigators speaking with surviving roommates. The other roommates were home at the time of the attack and were found uninjured. Moscow Police Department Chief James Fry said earlier this week. Investigators are speaking with the two surviving roommates, Snell told ABC. Potentially, they are witnesses. Potentially, they are victims, Snell said in an interview with ABC's Kenya Whitworth. Potentially, they're the key to the whole. Potentially, they're the key to this whole thing. Police have said they don't have a suspect. Snell said no one has been included or excluded as a person of interest and slash or a suspect. The Friday evening update, police said they do not believe the two surviving roommates or a male seen in the food truck surveillance video were involved in the crime. Police asked public to stay vigilant. Autopsies were conducted on November 17th. Police said late Friday the Lata County coroner confirmed the cause and manner of death of the students was homicide by stabbing, police said. The killings, which happened little more than a week before Thanksgiving break, have instilled harrowing sentiments among students as authorities investigate leads to identify a suspect or locate a murder weapon. The university's often packed parking lots had many empty spots Thursday after scores of students decided to return home, leave the area. Everyone kind of just went back home because they're scared. It's definitely uneasy on campus right now, said or everyone kind of just went back home because they're scared. It's definitely uneasy on campus right now. Soon Nathan Tino told CNN Tino, who said the community is trying to approach the tragedy with sympathy at the fact that no perpetrator has been caught and the case has elevated the sense of fear on campus. It's so dark, it's just like a dark cloud over everything. Ava Driftmeyer said, We're leaving as fast as we can. Driftmeyer, who said she lives near where the four students were killed, described how it has been a difficult situation to process, both mentally and emotionally. I just don't even think it's like Sutton yet. You know how insane this is, and the fact that there's no answers is like the worst feeling ever, she said. Police said Wednesday they could not definitely determine the public was not a risk. Backtracking an earlier statement that the attacks were targeted, we cannot say there's no threat to the community, Fry said Wednesday during a news conference. And as we have stated, please stay vigilant, report any suspicious activity, and be aware of your surroundings at all times. The university also reminded students mental health support is available for them. We are, st we are all still working through our griefs and a range of emotions. Compounding this is the frustration and concern that no one has been arrested for these crimes. University President Scott Green sent a statement. Students, you are encouraged to do what is right for you, whether this is going home early or staying in class. You have our support, Green added. Victim's father says she fought for her life during attack. 
As many details remain unclear, one of the victim's parents revealed his child's struggle with the attacker. The father of Zena Cronodal said he spoke with his daughter at midnight Sunday, just hours before she was attacked and killed, saying an autopsy. He said she fought off her attacker through the end. Bruises torn by a knife. She's a tough kid, Jeffrey Cronodal told CNN affiliate KPHO slash KTVK in Avondale, Arizona. Cronodal said Zaina stayed in regular communication with her family. I think midnight was the last time we heard from her, and she was fine, he told the station. And he doesn't understand why his daughter and her roommates were killed in their own home. They were just hanging out at home. Zaina was just hanging out at home with her boyfriend. He said... Cronodal said the door of the home opened with a number code, so they either know that or they just kind of went around and found the slider sliding door open, he told KPHO slash KDPK. Goncalves sister Olivia Goncalves told ABC World News Tonight, there was a keypad door lock on the door and my sister was always a door locker, but that sister added this was the party house and it's generation so I won't say they were very private with that code. Just hours before the four students were killed, Glenn Calvis had posted a photo of the group with the caption, one lucky girl to be surrounded by these people every day. Adding a heart emoji, a TikTok video from Glenn Calvis account posted October 27th shows Glenn Calvis and the two other female victims, Grenodal and Mogan. The video shows the women pretending to be each other in a humorous context, offering a glimpse into their lives. All of this is so confusing to us because Kaylee's not stupid. Olivia Goncalves told Inside Edition, she's a smart girl, she's a strong girl, she's a mean girl, she's a fighter. New timeline details emerge. Scant information available regarding the case has been frustrating. Those closest to the victims as well as the campus community. Yet a video showing two of the victims has helped police get a clearer idea of the hours leading up to the homicides. In a live Twitch stream from a food truck called Grub Truckers, Bogan and Goncalves were last seen alive while ordering $10 worth of carbonara around 1.40 a.m. local time Sunday in Moscow. As they waited for about 10 minutes for their food, they chatted with each other as well as other people standing by the truck. Joseph Woodall, who manages the food truck, told CNN the two students did not seem to be in distress or in danger in any way. Chapin said Chapin and Carnotal were at a party on campus Saturday night. Fry said all four students returned home early Sunday, sometime after 1.45 a.m., Fry added. Later Sunday morning, the four were killed inside their home. Authorities said police responded to the residence after receiving a 911 call around noon. Reporting someone was unconscious, authorities have not released the identity of the 911 caller. When police arrived at the home, they walked into a grisly, bloody crime scene. It was a pretty traumatic scene to find four dead college students in the residence corner. Mabut told CNN affiliate. KXLY earlier this week. All four were pronounced dead at noon, and police have not revealed who made the 911 call. They were smart, they were vigilant, they were careful, and this all still happened. Goncalves' older sister Olivia said in a statement on behalf of the family to the Idaho statesman, No one is in custody, and that means no one is safe. Yes, we are all heartbroken. Yes, we are all grasping. But more strong than any of these feelings is anger. We are angry. You should be angry. Okay, so today I want to start with something that I might continue to the next episode. It's should Sacramento create a fund to, for youth services voted to decide on Measure L, Sacramento, California. Money for youth service, money for youth services is on the ballot in Sacramento this year, and voters will decide whether to create a Sacramento Children's Fund. 
If passed, Measure L would amend the city's charter to establish and allocate money in the city budget for the Sacramento Children's Fund. It would also create a commission to provide oversight. The money could only be spent on new services, including after-school programs, mental health and wellness services, violence prevention and intervention, early childhood education, and youth workforce development. Measure L is not a tax increase. Cannabis business operations tax revenue would comprise the bulk of the Sacramento Children's Fund. A no on so the answer to that is basically a no on Measure L would reject the proposal to create a Sacramento Children's Fund. And another question that I believe is asked is, isn't the city already paying for youth services? And the answer to that is yes, millions of dollars, both those for and against Measure L agree youth or funding youth services with taxpayer dollars is an important investment.